Isaiah chapter 8, we will do our scripture reading for today's sermon. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 today in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. This is what the Word of God says. Then the Lord said to me, take your, for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, swift is the booty and speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him Ma'er Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, The wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloah and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Remaliah, now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria in all of his glory. And it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck and spread the spread of its wings will fill the breath of your land. O Emmanuel. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For this wonderful Lord's Day in which we can gather together as your people in remembrance of the active and passive obedience of your Son. We thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection as the consequent glories of his labor and his death and his obedience. Lord, we thank you for the richness of this work of our Savior Jesus. Thank you for his perfect life, Lord, that he lived in our place, that he lived in our stead, and we thank you, Lord, that his death was sufficient, such that we can celebrate with a cup and with the bread and encapsulate all of the sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus Christ, not only to redeem us and to cleanse us and to forgive us of our sins, but then to transform us and to renew us so that we can walk in newness of life by the power of his spirit, the spirit that he poured out as he ascended on high to the right hand of the Father and entered into his heavenly session. We thank you for your son today. We pray, Lord, today that you would glorify and magnify his work and his grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Chapter 8 of the book of Isaiah may not be obvious to us, as most of us probably cannot quote a verse out of Isaiah chapter 8. You might remember the verse back in Isaiah chapter 7, at least the prophecy there of Emmanuel, the sign of the child that will be given and the virgin birth. But chapter 8 at times kind of gets lost in the mix. Chapter 9, you probably have a verse memorized out of that chapter 2, because there we're told that this child will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, father of eternity. But chapter 8 is also very important to reveal to us the nature of God's 
redemption and the purpose of of that, that redemption as it is contained in the people of God as they undergo the curse that is introduced by the sign of Emmanuel. You remember, going back to chapter 7, if you didn't uh, hear that sermon, you need to go back and listen to it, because in chapter 7, verse 14, the very sign that is given to King Ahaz became a sign of judgment. Why? Well, because Ahaz rejected uh, the hope of salvation found in the Lord God. In verse 9, he is told if he doesn't believe, he will not last. And because he did not believe, therefore the sign of Emmanuel would come to spell judgment for the nation, not blessing, not salvation. And here in chapter 8, that judgment is amplified. And so that's really what we're going to see. But at the same time, we need to ask the question, why? Why is the judgment of God coming in the way that it is? And I guess to start things out, what we can say is the, the dreadful mistake of the nation of Israel is a matter of misplaced glory. In 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, I believe it is, in verses 6, verse uh, 11, and verse 18, the Apostle Paul tells us repeatedly that we are to look to the nation of Israel as an example for us so that we would not commit the same fallacies that they committed, that we would not sin in the way that they sinned, that we would not crave evil as they craved evil. And therefore, there are some very important redemptive examples for us to learn from here in this text. And when I say a matter of replaced or misplaced glory, it is because Ahaz and the people of Israel had come to esteem something greater and higher than God. They no longer feared God as they ought to. Instead, they feared man. And we'll see that. That really is at the very essence of all sin. What is the definition of sin? Sin, according to Romans chapter 3, is the falling short, or literally the contradiction of the glory of God. Sin happens anytime our lives are out of sync with God. Anytime we do not live for His glory, or to use the language of the great confessions, when we do not live for the glory of God, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever, then we have misplaced our glory. We're not living for the supreme affection of the glory of God. He is not at the very center of our universe. He's not the chief goal of all of our dreams and aspirations, the ultimate reason for our existence. And when we don't live for that, our lives will show it. And Israel's life is showing it here because they are conflicted. We talked about the impossible conundrum of the king Ahaz and where he's at. If he does nothing, then the neighbors right to the north of him, namely the northern kingdom of Israel and then a little bit further to that, Syria or Aram, they will invade, they will take over, they will overthrow Ahaz and they will put in the son of Tabil. And in order, to, the reason they want to do that, of course, is because they want a coalition of three countries to come together in defense of the greater threat, which is Assyria. But Ahaz's problem is this, if he capitulates to the northern kingdom and to Syria, well then he's in trouble because his throne is over. But if he does nothing, then he's got a bigger problem because Assyria will invade and kill all of them. So what does he do? He is trapped. 
And the answer, of course, came in verse 9. He has to trust in the word of the prophet. If he doesn't believe, he will not stand. So he must believe in what the word of the prophet is telling him. Like we know for certain that he does not. Why? Because of verses 10 and 11. He doesn't ask for a sign to confirm the promise. He kind of plays the religious game. He uses, even quotes or alludes back to Deuteronomy. Test not the Lord. (laughs) Of course, he said that out of false piety. He didn't actually mean that. What he meant to say was, if I'm left with nothing but faith alone, then that will certainly not do. If I don't have a way to manipulate this thing, then forget it. And so this, this whole confrontation by the prophet was meant to illustrate something, and that is this, that the kingdom of God is in trouble. They have a king that has no faith. And now, this is where chapter 8 comes in, to show this, that the people are a kingdom that also has no faith like their king. So in a sense, it's this. Chapter 7 was sort of a function to incriminate the king. Chapter 8 now serves to incriminate the people. And so as the king goes, so does the people. And that's really where chapter 8 begins. Letting, we could say this, point one, letting all the world become guilty before God. Isaiah does this in two ways. Are you ready? He does this by giving them a sign and giving them a son. The sign is the placard, a, literally a physical tablet. Look at verses 1 and 2. Upon which the prophet will write. He says, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it with ordinary letters. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will make to myself faithful witnesses for testimony. Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Now, we may not understand what is going on here. Well, what's interesting here is uh, this tablet uh, upon which Isaiah is instructed to write. We actually have archaeological evidence of this going back, dating all the way back to the time of Isaiah with other kingdoms where literally tablets of either, either uh, wood or metal would be beaded out into kind of like a placard, and they would post it in very crucial places uh, in the city or throughout the kingdom in order to make a public announcement to everybody, okay? So it was kind of like an ancient billboard, okay? And so Isaiah is told to do that and to write in ordinary letters. In other words, just write it in a way that everyone will see it. Everyone will uh, at least uh, be able to tell that you are making a public announcement, like a public telecast to the nation. This is what is happening. But then what he writes is enigmatic. In other words, kind of like the sign that was given to Isaiah, at first it will not be understood. Remember what uh, Isaiah told the king in uh, verse 11? Ask a sign for yourself and do what? Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And, And then he doesn't. And so, he says, okay, because you refuse to do this, the Lord himself will give you a sign, verse 14. In the same way here, the same way that Emmanuel was a sort of cryptic, mysterious, enigmatic sign that the king could not really understand, at least not without the eye of faith, so to hear, the prophet is told, write down these Hebrew words, Lamaher shalal, Hashbaz, which is exactly the name that is going to be given to his son. So upon this sign, a dual impact would take place. On the one hand, it would alert the entire nation that the prophet is speaking, that the prophet of God is speaking to the people. And so that would force the people to then have to enter into a conversation 
that was unmistakably spiritual. And yet, further than that, the saying was shrouded in mystery. So the people would be driven to have to inquire from their leaders what the precise meaning of this placard is. This makes sense because of verse 2. God says, I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony. I think that's almost spoken sarcastically, to be honest, because he takes Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Now, let's start with Zechariah. Who in the world is that? Well, it's not the book of Zechariah. That's a post-exilic prophet, so not, that's at a time. So that, he comes much later. So who is Zechariah? Well, <clears throat> I checked every commentary that I have, and nobody knows, so I'm not going to pretend to know. In other words, we just don't have the biblical data to support uh, exactly what his identity is. But John Oswald, in his commentary, he contends that Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah, may have been an old, uh, may, may have been regarded as a prophet in the royal court who stood alongside of Uriah, who was a priest in the royal court. So maybe that's fact. Maybe he was a priest. Maybe he was a prophet. We don't know. One thing is for certain. He was important in the context of the royal court of Israel. Now, who is Uriah? Well, Uriah, the consensus there is that Uriah is actually the Urijah of a different form of the same word, the same name, mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 10 to 16. Why that is important is because in 2 Kings, Urijah the priest was used by Ahaz actually to construct a pagan altar uh, in place of the biblical altar in the house of God. In other words, uh, what happened was Ahaz went up to Syria. He saw what was going on in the, the pagan worship of the Assyrians. He admired their altars and their pagan symbols. And he says, I know what, I'm going to take my priest and I'm going to make a model. It's almost like he took a picture of this thing. He kind of sketched it out. And he says, I'm going to make my priest build me one that looks just like that so that when the Assyrian king comes and, you know, we get into our political discussions, he'll see an altar that resembles his, and maybe that will endear me towards the Assyrians. And in the process, he ends up desecrating the altar of God. That's who he is. But what God is saying here is, I'm going to take these men, I'm going to take Uriah, and I'm going to take Zechariah, and they will, in a sense, be witnesses to me. They will have to give an answer to the people as to what God is doing in their midst. And probably what that means is that these people will know nothing about what God is doing to, to, uh, in their midst. These people will produce nothing but ignorance for the people. They will not be able to unlock the sign that Isaiah is giving. Well, Isaiah gives further clarity of this because not only does he give them a sign, he also gives them a son. Look at verses 3 and 4. So I approached the prophetess. Now, the prophetess is here a reference uh, to the wife of Isaiah. Why is she called a prophetess? Well, maybe she was a prophetess, like Miriam was a prophetess. Or maybe, as most have concluded, she is called a prophetess because she is married to a prophet. And also because her, uh, her um, giving birth to their son is a prophetic event. At any rate, she's called the prophetess, and she conceives and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry out, my father, my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In other words, before this child reaches a certain age, the Assyrian destruction will be full under 
way. While the earlier sign, Emmanuel, chapter 7, verse 14, while that had implications for the far distant prophetic future, Isaiah's son was born into the prophet's times, and he served as an incarnate sign of the prophetic word of God, and also as a typological fulfillment of that earlier message, that earlier sign through Emmanuel. Here was a special child being born at God's behest, at his direction and his intervention. And while Emmanuel, this is the point, was a prophecy that would later gather the people of God so that God could dwell with them, this child, on the other hand, would be a sign for the scattering, the separation, and the destruction of his people. One was promising covenant blessing, the other covenant curse, as their wealth and their spoil would be carried away before the king of Assyria in plunder. Because they did not heed the prophet's sign or son, their apostasy of king and people would be public. This is what I mean, that all the world may become, become guilty before God. As one commentator put it, the apostasy of Israel would be public. They would do it with the knowledge of what they're doing. Now, this leads us to the inevitable uh, sort of decision set before the people. They either are going to opt for the grace of God or they're going to opt for the wrath of God. That's really uh, what's going on here. And all these enigmatic signs were all leading to this inevitable choice. Would Israel repent and believe or would they refuse and apostatize from the covenant? These are two alternative spiritual conditions that would unleash two antithetical realities of blessing and curse from the hand of one God of the covenant. Would they have the gentle grace of God or the fierce wrath of God? Isaiah's public announcement would force the issue and make it so that every Hebrew in Judah would face the covenant ordeal of blessing and curse for themselves. This is such like the gospel, isn't it? Everyone has to decide. Everyone in the sense of the valley of decision. Everyone is confronted with a covenant ordeal before God. Will you experience the blessing of God or will you experience the curse of God? If you do not believe, you will not last prophet gives us two images to underscore the redemptive work of the Lord consisting either of wrath or of grace. Look at, look at verses 5 through 7. Here's both of them, but focusing mainly on verse 6. But again, the Lord spoke to me further saying, inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin, that's the uh, king of Syria, Aram, and the son of Remaliah, that's Pekah, that's the king of Israel. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory. It will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Wrath is coming. That's what Isaiah is saying. And the reason is very clear. The people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Now, you know the prophet here is being poetic. And he's using this beautiful imagery of a gentle stream 
uh, known as Shiloh, that originated out of Gihon, and sort of worked its way through the region down into Jerusalem. And it was at times, uh, it was at times such a slow-moving stream that you could hardly even notice that it was moving. It just kind of would kind of go around the bends and go through the slopes of Zion and all of that. And people would look at that as, that's the option? (laughs) You look up at the Euphrates and it's like a torrent. The mighty Euphrates, the envy of the world. And yet, you want us to choose Shiloh. So something metaphorical, typological, and redemptive is going on here with Isaiah's use of this imagery. He wants them to choose Shiloh over the Euphrates. Interestingly enough, when we were in Israel, we saw this stream. I don't know if people remember that. But it's the stream that tunnels underneath the city and eventually Shiloh, under Hezekiah's rule, eventually that water system was tunneled under the city and gathered into a pool called the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam mentioned in John chapter 9, verses 7 through 11. It didn't exist at this time, but it will in the future under Hezekiah. With the beauty of this imagery, however, there's also a profound danger that we also need to take heed to. I think if the lesson is to be learned of what Isaiah is saying here, we need to be careful that we don't think that the steady stream of God's grace, God's redemption, is not enough for us. See, this is why I started out by saying this is a matter of misplaced glory. This is a matter of thinking that your best interests lie somewhere else, that there is something more powerful, more satisfying, more lasting, more meaningful for your life and for mine outside of God's redemptive grace and his providential care for your life. Uh, Israel was going to other waters. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah captures this exact sentiment perfectly. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 2, you may recall this message, but it's, it's so adequate, so apt and adequate and appropriate to what Isaiah is talking about here. It's a problem with these prophetic books. It's like 60 pages, you know. <laughs> Beginning in verse 12, Jeremiah 2 says, Be appalled, O heavens, At this, he says, and shudder, be desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The application of that is enormous. Essentially, that is the idolatry of sin, going elsewhere for satisfaction, for life. Jesus says the flesh profits nothing, but the Spirit is what gives life. And that's the lesson that we all have to learn, right? I mean, I thought, how can I make this so clear, uh, so basic? I thought, okay, well, I'll just talk about a Christian testimony. Okay, well, whose Christian testimony am I going to talk about? Okay, I, I guess I'll talk about mine. 
But I won't go into the gross details, only to say that as a young man, I know I went to every conceivable well that I could in search of satisfaction, in search of meaning, purpose, joy, happiness, you name it. And little do I know I was going from well to well seeking something that would never be provided for me in those sources because it doesn't have it. Because as Jesus told the woman at the well, you go drinking out of those wells, you will thirst again. You go, but you take the water of life, you take the water that Jesus gives you, and you will never thirst again. He is the water of life. He is the fountain of life. He is where all true life is found. They had misplaced their priorities. Just go back over to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. When you misplace your priorities, you begin to deify what you, what you find pleasure in. You begin to see that as what you need to esteem in life and not God. That's what Israel did. Look at verse 12. You are not to say it is a conspiracy. Now, we'll explain that when we get here, but basically, let's just sum it up real quick. What's going on is that Isaiah's sign, Isaiah's announcement, Isaiah's son, there's going to be a whole conspiracy built around the significance of all that and such that the people will ultimately come up with a conspiracy theory and say, oh, it's just, yeah, it's just a crazy prophet. He's just up to his prophesying again, right? They say, no, 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 you're not going to go along with the masses. He says, in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Listen to this. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And I think the Lord of hosts there is used specifically because, brothers and sisters, we are talking about kings, kingdoms, and armies. And this is the phrase that means the Lord of armies. Don't fear the Assyrian king of army. Fear the king of kings. Fear his army. That's kind of what he's getting at. You should regard him as holy, Isaiah says. And he shall be your fear. Watch this. And he shall be your dread. Dread, the Hebrew word dread there, literally means that which strikes terror. And uh, so much for, you know, preaching sermons about the fear of God that, oh, it's just the fear of reverence or respect. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Tell that to Isaiah. How about you fall down on your face in terror before the holiness of God? I promise you, you will. I promise you, you would. After all, isn't that what Isaiah just did in chapter 6? Woe is me, I am ruined. He didn't say, woe is me, I'm full of so much reverence. Now, when you get a picture of the holiness of God, when God pulls back the veil and shows you, yeah, your skin will crawl. As uh, R.C. Sproul is famous for saying, when Men encounter the holiness of God. Flesh trembles. That's exactly what Isaiah saw. That's exactly what Isaiah is calling for. And that is exactly what Israel is turning their back on. Because his kingdom is not of this world, it does not follow the ordinary course of power. They have mistaken Shiloh, a representative of God's kingdom, 
for something weak. But the kingdom of God is an undercurrent. It weaves through all the land, as it were. It may be mocked for its apparent weakness, undermined in potential, and rejected for some other excess. But the quiet stream of redemption is feeding the city of God and building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. While the Euphrates was the envy of the world, brothers and sisters, Shiloh is to be preferred because of its association with the king, and Shiloh is the envy of those who by faith have tasted and seen that the king of Zion is good and that his provision is enough. Shiloh is to be preferred of all the rivers of the world in the same way that Jerusalem was in Psalm 68, God says, verses 15 and 16, this mountain is great and it is a mountain of God. This mountain over here is great too and it's a mountain of God. But oh, God has chosen Jerusalem as his place of dwelling, which is meant to say, you know, you've been in Jerusalem, the mountain of God in Jerusalem, okay, this is like a hill, okay, this is like a little mount, okay, you stack it up next to Everest, you know, Everest is like a mile high, you know, but Zion is like a little bump. Okay, and so on the face of it, it's not impressive, but what makes it impressive, it's not the height of its elevation. What makes it impressive is who is enthroned there, and it is the king. That's why it's called the navel of the world. In the face of the pomp, and I think of Jesus, because in the face of the pomp and pride of Rome, Jesus says, Come to me. I am gentle. That's like a cuss word to a Roman. A Roman would say, I'm powerful. I'm strong. I'm brutal. Gentle? What is that? I am humble, Jesus says. I am humble in heart. Can you imagine the king of the universe? the commander of the Lord's armies, coming down, condescending Emmanuel, dwelling among us and say, this is how I am summoning you. I am summoning you by attracting you to my gentleness and my humility of heart so that you can find rest for your souls. But because Israel would not have this, because Judah would not have this, they will have instead the wrath of the Euphrates. Look at verse 7. Now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all of his glory. You think there's a play on words there? And it will rise up over all its channels and go over all of its banks. Now, getting into the exegesis of this passage, there is a controversy in verse 6. The question is, to whom does these people refer. Uh, now, the options are two. It either refer, refers to the people of the northern kingdom, that is to, um, that's going to be referring to Pekah, the king of Israel, and to Rezin, the people up in Aram or Syria, what we know now as Syria. It's either referring to those people or it's referring to Judah, who is sort of the subject of the present judgment. And I, I think most commentators would see this as a reference to Judah, but still, I don't know. I might be with Alec Mater, who is kind of unique among the commentators at this point, and he argues that, in fact, it is referring 
Right now, at least in verse 6, it's referring to the northern kingdom of Israel and to Rezin in Syria because uh, the, con- uh, uh, the context uh, following the verses seems to suggest that the prophet is referring to the northern kingdom uh, and then to Judah. Uh, verse 8, because you see it kind of swelling, and then what does he say? Then it will sweep on into Judah. You see that? And so that, if that is right, it's just the prophet here getting the pecking order right. When the Assyrian flood comes, first it will overwhelm the kingdoms of the north, and then it will spill over into Judah. Now, now if, you're, uh, if you're in Judah listening to this, why does this matter? It matters a lot because it's saying, it's, it's, this is, remember guys, this is Isaiah speaking to the times in which the people lived. Uh, so this is what they saw, what they understood, they got it. That first, the northern kingdoms would topple. By the way, uh, this is the end of the northern kingdom. Uh, No more Israel. No more Ephraim. They're gone. It's over. And now, the prospect of Judah going away is why the entire book of Isaiah is so important. If Judah is destroyed, what are the prophecies that speak of the Redeemer coming through Judah? What are the promises made to the fathers? What of the covenant that is made? What's going to happen to all of that? The promises are coming to an end? No. No, no, no. No, God is still working in the midst of all of this, and this is where we're going to go. In the midst of all this, not only do we see the, wrath, the, 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 the grace that they rejected, the wrath that is coming, but also, brothers and sisters, for you and I, the hope that is available for the vilest offender. Where do you see that? Well, it may not be easy to perceive, but let's see if we can spot it here in verse 8. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will, pa- it will overflow and, pla- and pass through. Here it is. It will reach even to the neck. And so the the prophetic idiom that is given here is of a person who finds themselves in in fast rushing water like a flood. And the flood is so fierce that then the prophet leaves the scene with a person in the flood, in the river, up to his neck in wrath. But it's only up to the neck. It hasn't completely destroyed him. It hasn't completely overwhelmed him. Up to the neck means almost to the point of no return, but not quite. And therefore, there is a lasting hope. Let's see if we can understand this. Isaiah's oracle of judgment may have sounded like something Ahaz could initially use as an advantage. The northern kingdoms are going to perish. Great! Great for Ahaz. But now the prophecy pushes it further, not just the northern kingdom, but also the deluge would overwhelm the borders of Judah itself. But this would never be the final word. It's never the final word. Isn't that great? Have you ever read the prophets and thought to me, man, so much judgment. You ever ever thought about that? Wrath everywhere, judgment everywhere, destruction everywhere. Uh, Turn back, uh, please, to chapter 6. Look at verse 11. Remember, what is the the commission for this prophet in the first place? You remember, don't lose sight of this. This is important in light of the heavenly tribunal and the word of God that was unleashed there. Then I said, Lord, how long will all these things be? And God answers this, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land is 
utterly desolate. For the Lord removed men far away and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, yet there will be a tenth portion in it. So it seems like there's an initial survival, but then, and it will again be subject to burning. So maybe there is the Assyrian and the Babylonian invasions there. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. And so maybe what we're seeing here is that the holy seed may appear to be up to its neck in wrath, but has not been completely overwhelmed yet. It is not judgment in the prophets is never the final word. If you don't understand that, you will miss the gospel. There are many biblical covenants in the Bible. And most people are aware of those covenants. There's, you know, covenant of Abraham, covenant with Noah, covenant with Moses, David. But there are also two theological covenants which Reformed theologians understand to govern all biblical covenants, namely the covenant of works, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and the covenant of grace, which is introduced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 as a promise. Like Adam, who broke the covenant of works, Israel is witnessing the enforcement of God's judgment, his wrath, even as Adam and Eve when they breached the original covenant. Just like Adam and Eve, Israel will be banished from the, the land of blessing, the land of Canaan. Listen to this now. Which Canaan in Scripture is a redemptive reenactment of Eden. And that's something that, you know, come talk to me afterwards or whatever. There's a whole rich theology there. But like Adam and Eve, Judah will find themselves in exile. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. As a matter of fact, we can see the continued nature of the curses of breaking God's covenant by the inversion, meaning toppling it upside down, of other biblical metaphors in this text. While God often portrays himself, listen now, bird-like, avian shape, in an avian imagery, like a flying bird protecting, hovering over his people, brooding over them like a shield to shield them against the forces of judgment, the forces, the cosmic forces of evil. Like Psalm 91, where God has portrayed an avian form who protected the people from the cosmic powers of Egypt. Here in Assyria, the enemy, the enemy power, he, it will spread its wings over the land. See what's going on there? It's a great inversion of the covenant. Emmanuel will come to mean God with us for judgment, not for protection. Look at verse 47 of Deuteronomy. This is the logic of what's going on in Isaiah because this is part of the promise. When we think promise, we mainly think blessing. We mainly think a land flowing with milk and honey. We hardly think wrath and judgment. But that's part of God's promises too. You might not find it in your Walmart. God promises books or Bible promises books. But it is in the Bible. And uh, here's what God promises. Deuteronomy 28 verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart, for the abundance of all things, 
right? It's almost like translation into the book of Isaiah. Because you didn't want the gentle flowing streams of Shiloh, because you esteemed the Euphrates and the power of Assyria, (laughs) therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and in thirst and nakedness and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old and show no favor to the young. It will be a brutal nation, and that's exactly who Assyria was, and that's exactly who Babylon was, and that's exactly who Rome was. And we can go on and on. But that's not the end of the story in Deuteronomy. And that's not the end of the story in Isaiah. It was not the end of the story for humanity in the original garden situation with Adam and Eve. And it's not the end of the story here. Just when we have seen as if, just as when it seems as if all hope is gone, God is moved by another principle, namely the principle of grace. The covenant of grace, which was first also given to Adam and Eve in the form of that great redemptive promise, brothers and sisters, never ceases to be in operation, regardless of what covenant is active, what covenant administration is going on in all of redemptive history. Listen closely. The covenant of grace is simply God's gospel promise to save a people for himself by grace through faith. And that faith is built upon the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, the messianic seed of the woman, the Asianic suffering servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah, chapter 53, for example, who crushes the head of the serpent, bringing everlasting triumph over death and hell. This has practical implications for you, practical implications for me in our practical everyday life. How do I know that? Because... Romans chapter 16, the apostle uh, Paul there, in comforting the persecuted Romans, reminds them that in the daily grind of life, remember that God will soon crush Satan under your feet. And every commentary says this goes back to Genesis 3.15. That's exactly right. The principle of grace is, is, is indomitable. Uh, it is... Uh, You know, it's inconquerable. It doesn't end, praise God. And therefore, in Isaiah, even though the great and mighty Euphrates and the wrath that is churning in Assyria, it is the gentle streams of Shiloh that are always flowing and trickling down to the faithful in unrelenting grace. It's unrelenting, brothers and sisters, because he should have wiped the people off the map. And that would have been it. And that would have been just fine, just just, and just righteous for God to do that. Wipe them all off the face of the earth and leave it at that. Uh, Remember, Moses even got to the point where the children of Israel, okay, Lord, just uh, kill them. I've had enough with these people. They're too insubordinate, too recalcitrant, too rebellious. I can't handle them. Just go ahead, break out, and kill them all. And then God says, no, no, I, I, I will do a... I will do a new work. I will do a gracious work. 
so beautiful that the principle of grace governs everything that God does in redemptive history, and that's why it is indomitable. Even though he should destroy hell-deserving sinners, he does not leave it at that. Instead, he raises a banner, he raises a signal, he sends a child, he gives a sign, so that even in the midst of destruction, in the wasteland of wrath, no amount of sin, darkness, can extinguish the grace of God. Just had a friend reach out to me. It's a good old buddy of mine from high school. And we did some vile things together as young guys. And he's in prison. And I just got word that he's uh, claiming to have gotten saved. And so he's apparently trying to make contact with me and saying, man, where's Emilio at, man? <laughs> I got to talk to him. <laughs> and I just said, what a perfect example of what I'm talking about. There's my buddy Richard down in that cell. That's where his sin has led him, in the misery of where he's at. And down in the pits, God reaches down there and grabs a hold of his heart. Oh, and I hope it's genuine. I really do. I really, really do. Oh, I, I got word from two of my buddies almost simultaneously. One is this guy, and it seems like he's, and the other guy who's a guy, I almost wept when I heard the news, but um, he, a uh, similar story, and he reached out to me many years ago, got out of prison, and all, all your friends go to prison, Pastor Emilio? <laughs> Yeah, and I would have too if it wasn't for the grace of God. <laughs> Felix is like, yep. <laughs> and, uh, but that, that friend, uh, I got the terrible news that he's not doing well because of his lifestyle, drugs, and just, you know, just thrash. Sin has just thrashed him. And now he's dying of diseases and sickness. And one friend told me just a couple weeks ago, I don't think he has much time left. I'm thinking, man, this is, this is so bad. And yet, you know, this, this grace that is extended to Israel because of the covenant of grace is the same grace that is extended to anyone who will repent and who will believe, who will turn away from misplacing the glory, stop placing the premium on this world, the things of this world, the sin of this world, and place that glory where it belongs the chief end of man, to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. You see these people in the Black Friday lines? If you were in one of those lines on Friday, this is not a slam, but, <laughs> but you see these people falling over each other, hitting each other on the head with big screen televisions for crying out loud. What a sad illustration of our culture, but another, I think, adequate illustration of what sin is like. It's almost like we'll do anything to get it, and then once we get it, we need next year for another Black Friday brawl <laughs> because we weren't satisfied with a 50-inch TV. We need a 55-inch TV next year. You know, all of that. They had misplaced the glory of God, the fear of God, and the holiness of God. And that, in the same way, Jesus tells us, if you want to turn to chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 10, for example, the fear of man is a snare. That's what the Bible says. And Ahaz 
and Judah fell into it. They fell into it. And today, that exact same trap is being foisted upon the hearts and minds of mankind that they may fall into it. But Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 24, just for the context. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. Matthew 10, 25. It is enough for a disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of the household? Therefore, do not fear them. It's exactly what Ahaz needed to hear. exactly what he heard. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now that is a very important verse that has a lot behind it. Look at verse 24, 27. It kind of explains it, but demands more explanation. What I tell you in darkness... Speak in the light. That's what he's talking about. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And here's the key, beloved. If you're going to do this, do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. What kind of, Jesus, what kind of crazy, yeah, he was, he was otherworldly. <laughs> and he's saying, you know what your biggest problem is? This is, this is in the disciples, okay? This is, this is in the church that he's talking like this. He's saying, you know what the biggest problem in front of you is? Is you fear the death of your body more than the death of your soul. Which shows you do not understand who you are. You're created in the image of God. You have a soul that will endure into eternity. So that one day, when this life feels like a vapor dream, gone. In a very short while, 20 years for some of you, 10 years for some of you, 50 years for some of you, maybe 80 years for some of you. Like that baby walking that way maybe I, I pray 80 years lord of good life in the lord but you know what i mean it is a blip on the screen of existence and i truly believe that we're in heaven 10,000 years from now we'll look back and be like man that felt like a dream just came and went like the bible says like a vapor and what did i live for what was the purpose of it all? Jesus would tell you that would be predicated upon who you fear. And if you fear man, guess what? You will be ashamed of him. If you fear man, you will not proclaim on the rooftops what, I, what he speaks to us in secret. If you fear man, you will live for one thing only, and that is Self-preservation at all cost. And what, and what does Revelation tell us? That those martyrs were blessed. Why? Because they did not love their life unto death. Willing to part with goods and kindred. Let them go. This life also. 
Because there's something more important than that. Namely, look at the end of the verse, verse 28. Namely, to fear Him who is able to destroy both body or soul and body in hell. And this is a message Jesus wanted the church to understand. Wow. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's not down the street talking to the pagans. He's talking to his disciples who need to awaken to the priority of fearing God above all else. Oh, we are so ensnared to the fear of man. Aren't we, brothers and sisters? Come on, I mean, aren't we? If we weren't, our lives would show it more. Just more. We would risk more. We would go out more. We would labor more. I thought this today as I was preparing for my sermon. I thought today, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. So are you. We're servants of Jesus Christ. It's simple. Sometimes it's like the simplest, easiest Sunday school child, children's level truth that gets you, right? It's like I'm a servant, a disciple of Jesus Christ. But what am I doing for my Lord? You know? Don't think, oh, well, man, you're a preacher, dude, so it's easy for you. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Don't get confused. Do not be deceived into thinking that the more ministry that you do, that the more evidence that is that you are sold out for God. Oh, no. There's a very deceptive dynamic to ministry. You could, you, you could have mountains of ministry work on you and not be serving Jesus, not be communing with Jesus. And... Uh, that's almost another sermon, but y- you know what I mean. It's like, when I start thinking like that, it's almost like, I don't want to play church. I don't want to uh, uh, just get up there and preach a little sermon. It just boils down to Jesus. And am I truly, truly serving him, loving him, communing with him, following him, listening to him, learning of him, becoming like him? You know what this tells us, brothers and sisters, is this. The very thing that Ahaz and the people needed, the very thing they needed, they didn't do. The fear of God, not of man. But for those who repent, over them will flow the gentle waters of the grace of Shiloh to cleanse them, to purify them, and to make them new again. This just speaks of so much grace. Though the sin of Judah may be like scarlet, what did he tell us earlier? They can be white as snow. Oh, though Judah right now is in the clutches of darkness and vileness of their own sin. Brothers and sisters, we're talking about a king who took a priest into a pagan land, admired their paganism, and went home and reproduced it in the temple of God. This is vile sin. And yet... What does the old hymn tell us? The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Father, in all the world, all the examples that we can think of of the darkness that prevails our world, Help us not to underestimate the trickling, gentle, flowing stream 
of grace that is working its way through Zion, feeding the city of God and its inhabitants. And help us to understand that right in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of it all, there is such hope that at the moment, the vilest offender, even if you're in a prison cell because of your vile sin, you can, by the grace of God, encounter the living God, the grace of God, the life of God for an eternal satisfaction in God. So Lord, I pray that as your church, we would not fall into the trap of the fear of man, but we would be liberated by the fear of God so that we can do our master's bidding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.